welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. I hope you guys came to listen, because we've got a lot of cases again this week, and they are heady. We'll ease in with the Attorney General, but then jump right into crimmigration. Strap in. Also, on a personal note, my fiancé and I are finally getting married this week after an over one year delay due to COVID. We're very excited, and afterwards we'll be going on a much-needed honeymoon. But alas, although I've managed to pull it off on many vacations before, I cannot do the podcast while on my honeymoon, lest my marriage become very short-lived. Now I'm not gonna lie, and I really mean it. I'm going to miss doing the podcast during these weeks. But my colleague at KKTP, Elizabeth Montano, is going to take the reins. Elizabeth is a rising star in the immigration world who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast because her note in the Yale Law Journal kept getting cited by the circuits during the administrative closure disputes. You're going to be with Elizabeth for the next three weeks. Please welcome her with open arms. My only worry is that she'll do too good a job and steal my precious pod. Good luck, Liz. But first, you're stuck with me one last time. The people will hear from me one last time. Starting off, yet again, we have the Attorney General in matter of ACAA. This case is about domestic violence in particular social groups and the BIA's power to acknowledge DHS stipulations. The Attorney General continues his effort to wash away some of the prior administration's immigration legacy. The first published iteration of Matter of ACAA, discussed on episode 22 of the podcast, has been vacated by the Attorney General in its entirety. This is not entirely surprising, because as mentioned when the Attorney General vacated the matters of AB, Matter of ACAA was a domestic violence type asylum case and directly followed from the ABs. So with those decisions vacated, matter of ACAA was already kind of on shaky ground. But here, the Attorney General goes even farther, expressly vacating a procedural holding from matter of ACAA, in such a way that I can only imagine, has left some staff attorneys at the BIA smiling with relief. In matter of ACAA, the first. Attorney General Barr had held, in a nutshell, and contrary to how litigation works pretty much anywhere else in the United States, that even if DHS concedes or does not contest an element of an asylum case, such as, say, that a proposed particular social group is immutable, the BIA, and presumably then the immigration judge, had to review that element and every single other element of asylum law to determine if the applicant warranted relief. To put that another way and to be clear, although immigration court proceedings are adversarial in the tradition of U.S. law, Attorney General Barr instructed, in the asylum context at least, that the BIA needed to review every single element of a claim, 
even where DHS conceded that element was already met in the proceedings below. And as longtime listeners of the podcast will recognize, there are many, possibly a dozen, depending on how you narrow it down, elements in an asylum case. So you could potentially have a removal proceeding where no party believed an issue contested, but everyone is going through the motions, no pun intended, to develop the record for appellate review. Talk about a waste of taxpayer dollars. Well, Attorney General Garland vacated all that. The Attorney General did so, describing it as a, quote, rigid procedural requirement that would undermine the fair and efficient adjudication of asylum claims, end quote. And Attorney General Garland stated that Attorney General Barr's approach departed from the, quote, long-standing practice, end quote, employed by the BIA, and it conflicts with the regulations as well. So now, after a matter of ACAA the second, and it's a bit qualified, the BIA may address, quote, the use of stipulations and the consequences of DHS's decision not to contest specific elements on a case-by-case basis, end quote. This will, quote, ensure efficient adjudication by focusing the immigration court's limited resources on the issues that the parties actually contest, rather than those on which they agree, end quote. Couldn't agree more. Attorney General Garland, might I direct your attention next to matter of Thomas and Thompson? One more thing about the facts, as so often, we speak predominantly about the law on the podcast. Everyone in this case agrees, even Attorney General Barr, that Miss ACAA suffered horrible harm in El Salvador. And Miss ACAA originally won before the immigration judge, receiving humanitarian asylum. But DHS appealed. And the BIA dismissed that appeal. But Attorney General Barr reached down and vacated Miss ACAA's very tough win. With Attorney General Barr's decision now vacated, it would appear that Miss ACAA now has asylum again. Congratulations, Miss ACAA. And that is matter of ACAA the second. Sticking with the agency, we have matter of Aguilar Barajas, published by the BIA. BIA has entered the fray on an issue discussed a bit on the podcast in recent months. What effect, if any, does the Supreme Court's decision in Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions in 2017 have on the BIA's long-standing definition of a crime of child abuse, child abandonment, or child neglect, as used at INA Section 237A2EI, and its relation in statutory rape offenses? Answer? Not much. Mr. Aguilar Barajas is a non-citizen who entered the U.S. as an LPR in 2000. He did not naturalize and in 2019 was convicted of two counts of aggravated statutory rape in violation of Tennessee Code Annotated Section 39-13-506C. DHS initiated removal proceedings, charging him as an LPR convicted of two or more CIMTs not arising out of a single scheme of criminal conduct and additionally as an LPR convicted of a crime of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect under INA Section 237A2EI. The immigration judge held that DHS couldn't sustain either charge and terminated proceedings. DHS appealed, and in this decision the BIA reversed. As discussed before, the BIA defined the term of child abuse, abandonment, or neglect as referring to one concept, in matter of Vasquez Herrera, and then again in matter of Saram, stating generally and at a minimum that it includes, quote, endangerment-type offenses that pose a threat to the life or health of a child, regardless of whether there is actual harm or injury to a child, end quote. So that could be a pretty low bar of harm, it seems. The Tennessee statute at issue here is a statutory rape offense, requiring that the defendant be at least 10 years older than the victim, and that the victim be between the ages of 13 and 17 years old. Now, historically, a statutory rape offense like this might have had a more straightforward chance of qualifying as a crime of child abuse. However, in 2017, the Supreme Court decided Esquivel-Quintana v. Sessions. And in that decision, the court primarily held that to match the definition of an aggravated felony crime of sexual abuse of a minor, 
at INA Section 101A43A, a statutory rape offense must require that the victim be less than 16 years old. So here, the Tennessee statutory rape offense would not meet that definition because it allows for conviction if the child is 16 or 17 years old. Mr. Aguilar Barajas argued, as so many have, that similarly, a statutory rape offense shouldn't qualify as a crime of child abuse removal offense unless it's limited to victims who are less than 16 years old. The BIA rejected the argument, and in so holding agreed with two Fifth Circuit decisions discussed on the podcast. The BIA distinguished Esquivel-Quintana because that decision dealt with the aggravated felony provision, and the Supreme Court did note that its rationale was based in part on the fact that the aggravated felonies are the most serious removability provisions, and therefore should cover the most serious of conduct. Not the case with INA Section 237A2EI, for while it does make a non-citizen removable, it's not in the same category of removal offenses as, say, murder and it doesn't entail many of the same mandatory collateral consequences. And in any event, the Supreme Court did expressly leave open the issue in Esquivel-Quintana. So here, the BIA, presumably speaking for Attorney General Garland, has closed it, agreeing with the Fifth Circuit. For INA Section 237A2EI, child equals anyone under 18, no matter the degree of culpability of the conduct. Against that backdrop, the BIA held that the IJ erred in holding that the Tennessee statute didn't meet the removability definition, as the harm described, sexual contact to a child, was sufficient. Plus, the BIA held that the IJ erred in holding that the Tennessee crime additionally failed to satisfy matter of Velasquez Herrera's mens rea requirement because the Tennessee statute didn't have a mens rea requirement. Rather, the BIA explained that under Tennessee law, when a statute is silent as to the mental state required for a conviction, as is the case with the Tennessee statutory rape statute, Tennessee actually requires, quote, intent, knowledge, or recklessness, end quote. This satisfies the removability standard articulated in matter of Velasquez Herrera. Mr. Aguilar Barajas is therefore removable, and the case was sent back to the IJ for Mr. Aguilar Barajas to apply for any forms of relief that he's eligible for. Let's dive a bit deeper and see what the dissent has to say as well. So first, footnote two right out of the gate. The BIA recognized that the Attorney General, just this week and the last decision I just discussed, permits the BIA to, quote, rely on the DHS's decision not to contest certain issues on appeal, end quote. In this case, the IJ's decision that Mr. Aguilar Barajas is not removable for having been convicted of two CIMTs. And so therefore, the BIA did not address it. Looks like the BIA is on top of it. And oh, by the way, it's applying matter of ACAA outside of asylum. As it should. Turning to the substance, appellate judge Petty concurred and dissented. In essence, Judge Petty would hold that after Esquivel-Quintana, a statute that allows for consensual sexual conduct between a 17-year-old and a 27-year-old, as the Tennessee statute allows, cannot constitute abuse, a word that was expressly analyzed in Esquivel-Quintana. Nor does Judge Petty believe that the recent Fifth Circuit decisions, Garcia and Adico v. Garland, require a contrary conclusion. Judge Petty doesn't like it, but believes the BIA bound by the Supreme Court. And so turning to that Fifth Circuit stuff, although as the majority states, this decision does align pretty well with those two Fifth Circuit decisions, Garcia and Adico v. Garland, discussed on episode 62 of the pod, I suspect, as I said at the time, that Judge Haynes is interested in reviewing whether Esquivel-Quintana's definition of child and child abuse indeed does apply to INA section 237A2EI. And this is because, and again, I'm just kind of reading the tea leaves here from Adico, Judge Haynes did kind of infer that Niz Chavez and its expressly statute-based analysis might have changed the Fifth Circuit's rationale from Garcia. Seems like Judge Haynes might believe that Niz Chavez gave some firepower to the argument that like terms under the INA should be treated alike, such as sexual abuse of a minor and child abuse. 
Perhaps the Supreme Court is interested in clarifying. We'll see if all the circuits end up deferring to matter of Agula Barajas and whether the Supreme Court is called to resolve a circuit split on what it meant in Esquivel-Quintana. And that is matter of Aguilar Barajas. Moving on, we have Marina Lorena v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 26, 2021. This is the third iteration of this case, and it's primarily about burdens. In Marinella Rena II, the en banc Ninth Circuit had found that Miss Marinella Rena was removable but was not precluded from immigration relief, quote, because the record of Miss Marinella Rena's state law conviction was ambiguous, meaning she was not necessarily convicted of conspiring to sell and transport a controlled substance as defined under federal law, end quote. Although I haven't read the en banc decision in a while, I believe the conviction documents for the California Penal Code Section 182 Conspiracy vis-a-vis Cal Health and Safety Code Section 11352A offense may have been ambiguous as to the underlying drug at issue. But then came the Supreme Court's decision in Pareto v. Wilkinson, discussed on episode 45 of the podcast, which according to the Ninth Circuit, quote, clarified the effect of an ambiguous record when the relevant statute places the burden of proof on an applicant for immigration relief to show the absence of a disqualifying conviction, end quote. According to the Ninth, Pareto held that when an applicant is convicted of a divisible state criminal statute that includes some disqualifying offenses and some not, the record of a conviction is ambiguous concerning which category fits the crime, end quote, the applicant has failed to carry the required burden of proof, end quote. Respectfully, I believe an argument exists that Pareto can be read a bit more narrowly as applying only to circumstances where the full evidentiary record has not been provided to the court, as happened in Mr. Pareto's case. But it doesn't really matter what I think, especially now in the Ninth Circuit. In this decision, the U.S. government petitioned for certiorari in Marinella Rena II, which the Supreme Court granted and remanded after Pareto. And here we are. On remand from the Supreme Court, the Ninth Circuit panel denied the petition for review. Not entirely surprising for, as the panel reads the Supreme Court as completely having overturned its en banc decision on burdens, the panel's divisibility analysis from the first iteration of this case stands. And it's the same panel. So here, in addition to incorporating its prior analysis, explaining why the California conspiracy statute is divisible regarding the drug a defendant conspired to sell or transport, the Ninth Circuit stated that the California jury instructions instruct a judge to, in turn, instruct the jury to, quote, insert type of controlled substance, end quote, when rendering a guilty verdict. This, according to the court, further supports its prior finding that the type of controlled substance is an element of the conspiracy offense at issue. And to recap, because the type of drug is an element of the offense, the criminal statute is what we call divisible, meaning that in immigration court, a judge may review certain conviction documents to see which type of drug a non-citizen conspired to sell or transport. If the non-citizen conspired to sell or transport a drug listed in the Controlled Substance Act, the non-citizen is removable. If it was all about removability, DHS would have the burden, and presumably couldn't win on an ambiguous record regarding the substance at issue. But here, as so often occurs, Ms. Marinella Rena is removable for other reasons, likely because she entered the U.S. without authorization. And so she's applying for relief, meaning that she has the burden of proof. And according to the Ninth Circuit, after Pareto, she has the burden to prove that she conspired to sell or transport a drug not listed in the CSA. If she can't, she's barred from relief. In this case, non-LPR cancellation of removal. This, Ms. Marinella Rena, apparently failed to do, particularly as the conviction documents indicated that heroin was involved, which is a listed drug in the CSA. Ms. Marinella Rena, through counsel, argued for a remand so she could submit further evidence and testimony about the drug at issue. But the panel held that it's been a really long time, and Ms. Marinella Rena expressly chose not to do that the first time around. 
It appears, therefore, that Miss Marinella Renna's long saga is over in a bad way for Miss Marinella Renna. Here's some interesting stuff from Judge Tashima's partial concurrence and dissent. Judge Tashima wants to send it back for further submission of evidence, reading Pareda as having additionally held, quote, for the first time, that an applicant for cancellation of removal may rely on a broad range of testimonial and documentary evidence to show that she was not convicted of a disqualifying offense, end quote. After Pareda, a relief applicant, and at least a cancellation of removal applicant, is not limited solely to the narrow Taylor Shepard documents of conviction to meet her burden, but rather, quote, appears to include a non-citizen's own testimony, end quote even where that testimony contradicts the conviction documents. Remember that one. Judge Tashima also informs us why the record is ambiguous in this case, whether in the removal or the relief contexts. It's because the conspiracy count in this case listed 16 overt acts as underlying the conviction, and quote, Miss Marinella Renna's conviction could have rested on any one of the 16 alleged overt acts, end quote. Because only one overt act mentioned heroin, Ms. Marina Lorena's conviction doesn't necessarily establish that a controlled substance under the CSA was involved. This too requires remand because, according to Judge Tashima, Ms. Marina Lorena's conviction could be a conspiracy to do any of the 16 overt acts. And 15 of them don't involve heroin. Count me convinced. At the end of the day, Judge Tashima did not win, but read his opinion for persuasive ways to argue around Pareda, particularly with drug offenses. And that is Marinella Rena v. Garland. Sticking with the ninth, we have Estella Oriana v. Mayorkas et al., published on July 28, 2021. This is actually a naturalization case that arose in district court, and it's the last purely crimmigration case on this week's episode. It regards INA Section 101A43MI, Aggravated Felonies. Mrs. Thea Oriana is from El Salvador, and has been an LPR since February 2003. She applied to naturalize to U.S. citizenship years later, but in 2018, USCIS denied her application. See, in 2002, a year before she became an LPR, Ms. Estela Oriana filed a disability claim after getting injured at work, claiming she was unable to work, and was eventually paid over $37,000 in medical and other benefits. But a private investigator eventually discovered that, in fact, Ms. Estela Oriana was still working while collecting disability and workers' compensation, and didn't appear very injured. The insurance company filed a fraud report with prosecutors, and in May 2003, after she became an LPR, Ms. Estea Oriana pled to count three of a criminal complaint, concealment of a material fact affecting insurance benefit, in violation of California Penal Code Section 550b3. As part of the plea deal, prosecutors dismissed counts one and two in what, in California, is known as a Harvey Waiver which allows, quote, a court to consider the facts underlying a dismissed count for purposes of calculating the amount of restitution, end quote. The criminal judge ultimately ordered restitution to the employer in the amount of $30,000. Because of all that, USCIS denied the naturalization application. Although it's a bit complicated, especially in the Ninth Circuit, generally, an aggravated felony conviction, and certainly one after the effective date of IRIRA, will bar an LPR from naturalizing. USCIS took the position that Ms. Estea Oriana's conviction was for insurance fraud, and that it matched the aggravated felony definition of an offense that, quote, involves fraud or deceit in which the loss to the victim or victims exceeds $10,000, end quote under INA Section 101A43MI. Perhaps the most complicated of all aggravated felonies, in my opinion. Ms. Estea Oriana filed suit in federal district court, as the law allows, seeking de novo review of her naturalization eligibility. And she alleged in her complaint and submitted evidence, actually, that the loss to the employer was less than $6,000, thereby making the conviction not an aggravated felony. 
the district court dismissed the matter without prejudice, holding that Mrs. Estea Oriana failed to plead facts sufficient to show that she had not been convicted of an aggravated felony. And here the Ninth Circuit affirmed, agreeing with the district court that in making the INA Section 101A43MI $10,000 amount determination, a judge, quote, is not limited to reviewing the record in the applicant's criminal case in determining the loss to the victim, end quote. Here's why. In Nijuan v. Holder, and to paraphrase, the Supreme Court held that the fraud or deceit portion of the aggravated felony statute requires a categorical approach analysis, while the over $10,000 amount analysis allows for application of the circumstance-specific approach. It looks like Mrs. Thea Oriana didn't challenge that her conviction categorically involves fraud or deceit, so this decision is about what a judge can review under the circumstance-specific approach to determine whether the loss to the victim was over 10 grand. And here the Ninth Circuit held that judges are not limited to the Taylor Shepard conviction documents, such as a plea agreement, a restitution order, and a criminal complaint, as would be the case under the modified categorical approach but that instead, when conducting the loss-to-the-victim analysis, judges are, quote, generally free to consider any admissible evidence relevant to making such a determination, end quote. And this really includes anything, which could help non-citizens and did in fact help Mrs. Stea Oriana, because it meant that a judge was free to consider proof that, in fact, she only sent her employer checks amounting to about $6,000. But it also, of course, can hurt non-citizens, because at the removability stage, where DHS has the burden, were DHS to be limited solely to the conviction Taylor Shepard documents, DHS might not be able to meet it, especially where restitution, as is apparently the case in California, is not necessarily limited to the count of conviction. More on that later. Okay, fine. And we're in federal court, and we're at the motion-to-dismiss stage, so really, to survive dismissal, Ms. Estea Oriana needed only to plausibly allege that her conviction resulted in a loss of 10000 or less, which she did actually allege. And again, the court could consider the financial printouts of the check payments due to the liberal evidence standard that I just described, and which formed the crux of Ms. Estea Oriana's argument. However, in the complaint, Ms. Estea Oriana also stated that over $5,000 in costs were incurred by the victim when the victim hired the private investigator, which the Ninth Circuit deemed sufficiently tethered to the conviction itself, such that, adding up the checks and the cost that Ms. Estea Oriana pled in the complaint, even the complaint alleged a loss of over $10,000. The Ninth Circuit therefore affirmed dismissal of the case. But... And I'm sorry, it's my last week for a while. I'm just getting going. The Harvey waiver and related stuff from this decision is quite interesting to me. To begin, according to the Ninth Circuit, in Nijuan itself, the Supreme Court held that the circumstance-specific approach was a lawful thing to do because non-citizens were protected by, quote, procedural safeguards, end quote including the Third Circuit's rule at the time that, quote, loss to the victim must be tied to the specific counts covered by the conviction and cannot be based on acquitted or dismissed counts or general conduct, end quote. So very likely, in a multi-count complaint where some counts are dismissed, to rely on, say, a restitution order, as was relied upon here, the court must find that the $10,000 amount in restitution relates to the actual count of conviction. The issues become very complicated where, apparently as is the case in California with Harvey waivers, a criminal court can dismiss some counts, but still consider the acts underlying those counts when issuing a restitution order. We discussed a similar issue a while ago on episode 35 of the podcast in the Third Circuit's case, Rad v. Attorney General of the U.S., remember the Can-Spam Act, which incredibly does not criminalize the canning of processed meats? And we discussed a nearly identical issue on episode 17 in the Second Circuit case, Rampersad v. Barr, where like in California, New York Penal Code section 60.274a, quote, provides that restitution awards may include losses from any offenses contained in any other accusatory instrument disposed of by any plea of guilty by the defendant to an offense, end quote. So in New York and California, and at least with Harvey pleas, 
it seems like it's going to be hard for the U.S. government to show, if it has the burden, that the restitution order was tied to the actual count of conviction. Probably doesn't help at the relief stage in removal proceedings where the non-citizens have the burden, but it might. Find the argument. It did not help Mrs. Stea Oriana here because, again, in addition to the other allegations in the complaint alleging a total loss of 10000 and change, she did not plausibly allege that the 30000 in restitution did not relate to the count for which she was convicted, even in response to the motion to dismiss. This, according to the Ninth Circuit, allowed the district court to dismiss the complaint. But the arguments are there. And that is Estea Oriana v. Mayorkas et al. Next is Galvin v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on July 27, 2021. Out of Crimigration and into Jurisdiction. This case is similar to Guerrero Trejo v. Garland, discussed a few weeks ago on the podcast, that's excellent for federal court jurisdiction, but ultimately unfavorable to the non-citizen. Mr. Galvin is from Mexico, and entered the U.S. with a six-month non-immigrant visa in 2003, and he overstayed. He has four U.S. citizen children, was the GM of a, quote, local Dunkin' Donuts, end quote, in his Silver Springs, Maryland community for 16 years, and he worked in construction. He also was a, quote, active member of his church and regularly helped his children with their many activities, end quote. But he obtained two DUIs over a 13-year period, and in 2019, he was detained and placed in removal proceedings for overstaying his visa. He conceded removability and applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240A-B. As his wife didn't have legal status, he needed to show that his removal would cause exceptional and extremely unusual hardship to at least one of his children. The evidence was uncontested that he is their main financial support, provides significant emotional support, and that his children were having a very rough time without him while he was in ICE detention, including his eldest daughter, a teenager, who has ADHD and anxiety disorder. The immigration judge denied relief, finding that Mr. Galvin's children would not suffer the requisite hardship if he was removed to Mexico. The BIA affirmed. Mr. Galvin petitioned the Fourth Circuit for a stay of removal, and the Fourth Circuit denied it, so Mr. Galvin was removed and remains in Mexico, away from his family. And in this decision, the Fourth Circuit affirmed the BIA and the IJ's denial of non-LPR cancellation of removal. But first, the Fourth Circuit issued a big one on jurisdiction. Like the Fifth Circuit a few weeks ago, the Fourth Circuit held that the standard of exceptional and extremely unusual hardship presents a mixed question of law and fact, which the Fourth Circuit retains jurisdiction to review under the Supreme Court's decision in Guerrero La Spria two terms ago. So you can challenge hardship denials in the Fourth Circuit by arguing, for example, it appears, that the BIA applied the wrong legal standard when it held that the facts of a case didn't meet it. Attorney Mark Prada's gift that keeps on giving. So basically, every decision regarding whether a non-citizen has satisfied the statutory elements required of non-LPR cancellation of removal, and presumably other forms of relief, appears reviewable now as a mixed question of law at least where the facts are not in dispute. The relevant jurisdiction bar at INA Section 242A2B appears to only bar review of the ultimate decision to deny relief, after all of those statutory elements are met, where an IJ denies relief as a matter of discretion. In so holding, the Fourth Circuit enters a circuit split, agreeing with the Fifth and the Sixth, and quote, dicta, end quote, from the Eleventh and Patel, although Patel precluded review of relief for other reasons, while disagreeing with the Third and Tenth Circuits, which deemed the hardship analysis discretionary and thus jurisdictionally barred. I expect the Supreme Court's decision in Patel this upcoming term might answer all, or some, of this dispute. Like in Guerrero Trejo, however, after finding jurisdiction to review the issue, the Fourth Circuit upheld the agency reviewing de novo the application of the undisputed facts to the legal hardship standard, 
the Fourth Circuit agreed that Mr. Galvin had not satisfied the BIA's now 20-year-old exceptional and extremely unusual hardship standard, requiring that hardship be, quote, substantially beyond the ordinary hardship that would be expected when a close family member, end quote, is removed. The financial and emotional pain, in addition to the possible depression and ADHD of his eldest daughter, didn't cut it. Mr. Galvin, therefore, will remain in Mexico. One more thing. Interesting note here. The IJ and the BIA found the good moral character prong met, even though Mr. Galvin had two DUIs. As discussed a bit last week in the Seventh Circuit case, Attorney General Barr's 2019 decision in matter of Castillo-Perez would appear to preclude such a finding, or at least make it very difficult, as Attorney General Barr held in that decision that two DUIs equate to a presumption that an individual does not possess good moral character. But perhaps the IJ and the BIA did not apply that presumption here, because one of those DUIs occurred in 2003 outside of the 10-year period required by the cancellation of removal statute to establish good moral character. Just a thought. And that is Galvin v. Garland. Next up is Mencia Medina v. Garland, published by the 8th Circuit on July 29, 2021. This case is about cancellation of removal under the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA. Mr. Mencia Medina is from Honduras and entered the U.S. in 2001 as a child with his mother. He and apparently his mother did not appear for his hearing, and he was ordered removed in absentia. He moved to New Jersey to live with his father, but after both parents neglected and abused him, he was placed in foster care. He eventually returned to his parents and his mother became a lawful permanent resident through means unexplained in this decision. Many years later, in 2016, and I'm going to quote it because it's so unusual, quote, While Mencia Medina was visiting the home of his ex-girlfriend's mother, the girl's stepfather allegedly attacked him. The two men fought, and Mencia Medina retrieved a samurai sword from his car. Mencia Medina then followed the stepfather into the house, but ultimately gave up the sword without striking the man. End quote. Wise. The incident eventually led to a conviction in Minnesota for making threats of violence under Minnesota Statute Section 609.713.1. Notwithstanding all that, in 2019, Mr. Mencia Medina successfully got his in absentia removal order opened. Well done. And in immigration court proceedings, applied for special rule cancellation of removal, which is available to a child who has been battered by a lawful permanent resident parent also known as VAWA cancellation, under INA Section 248B-2. The IJ granted the relief, but the BIA reversed on DHS's appeal, finding that Mr. Mencia Medina did not warrant the relief as a matter of discretion. So he went to the Eighth Circuit. Before getting to the merits, the Eighth Circuit issued a not-so-friendly decision on administrative exhaustion. Mr. Mencia Medina argued that the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding when it overturned the IJ. And that might be true. While the regulations allow the BIA to re-weigh evidence, they generally bar the BIA from engaging in de novo fact-finding, that is, identifying and then relying on a fact that the IJ did not. But at the same time, to argue an immigration matter in federal circuit court, a non-citizen must have exhausted it before the BIA. What precisely that means, however, varies throughout the circuits. For example, you can't argue that the BIA improperly denied asylum before a circuit when the non-citizen only argues that the IJ improperly denied cancellation to the BIA. That's an extreme example. But when a non-citizen petitions for review on the BIA's denial of immigration relief, what's required to exhaust a claim that the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding in denying that relief? By definition, that's not an argument that can be made to the BIA on appeal from the IJ. And what needs to be exhausted anyway? Just the fact that the BIA erred in denying VAWA cancellation, or how it erred in denying? Well, the Eighth Circuit panel has a pretty tight requirement. 
Extending a bit its decision in Lasso v. Barr, discussed on episode 14 of the podcast, the Eighth Circuit held that in order to make the argument before the Eighth Circuit, Mr. Mencia Medina or any petitioner must, quote, move to reopen or reconsider on that basis, end quote, after the BIA denies the relief. That is, Mr. Mencia Medina needed to file a motion to reconsider with the BIA, telling the BIA that it engaged in impermissible fact-finding and asking it to overturn itself as if appeals were not already expensive enough. And according to the Eighth Circuit, this aligns with decisions and requirements out of at least the First, Fifth, and Tenth Circuits. So with that issue not even reviewable, the Eighth Circuit turned to the two arguments sufficiently brought before the BIA, that the BIA applied an incorrect legal standard to make its discretionary denial, and that the decision was unreasoned. To be honest, I'm not quite sure why the same reconsideration requirement filing wouldn't apply to those arguments too, but so be it, certainly not arguing for it. Everyone agrees that Mr. Mencia Medina is eligible for special rule cancellation of removal under the VAWA because he is the son of an LPR battered or subject to extreme cruelty by her, that he had good moral character for the requisite three years prior to receiving the relief, and that he wasn't inadmissible. But as we've discussed in the jurisdiction decisions, even if the non-citizen meets those requirements, all of this relief is still discretionary, and circuits can't review, generally, purely discretionary denials. Here, the Eighth Circuit held that the BIA did not commit a legal error, because indeed, the BIA considered Mr. Mencia Medina's past abuse as a child in its overall discretionary analysis, as case law indicates that it must. As to the second issue, premised on an argued disconnect between the BIA's finding that he has good moral character, but then its finding that he doesn't warrant relief as a matter of discretion, the Eighth Circuit held that actually, that was a challenge to the purely discretionary finding itself that it could not review. So the court dismissed the appeal. Three more things. Judge Kelly, in concurrence, doesn't seem to like the administrative exhaustion ruling very much, but understood the court bound by prior precedent. It appears that Judge Kelly also recognizes that indeed, the exhaustion rationale could be extended to many appellate arguments, as I referenced above, and so states in concurrence that the court's ruling only applies to claims that the BIA engaged in impermissible fact-finding. Only then must a non-citizen file a motion to reconsider on that basis before petitioning for review. Heads up on an issue not discussed. Potential matter of LLP issue in this decision, discussed on episode 44 of the podcast, and which requires that at least when the abuser is a spouse, that the spouse be an LPR or a U.S. citizen at the time of the abuse. Unsure if Mr. Mencia Medina's mother was an LPR at the time of the abuse, and quite frankly, this decision was probably all argued before a matter of LLP existed. But good to remember. Finally, and while we're with the Eighth Circuit, apparently the Eighth Circuit decision in Avendano Elvira v. Garland, discussed on the pod just last week, was vacated by the Eighth Circuit on the very day that it came out. Thank you to Attorney Jonathan Wilmoth for letting me know. And thanks for listening, Jonathan. And that is Mencia Medina v. Garland. Next is Vasquez Guerra v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 29, 2021. This case is about asylum and particular social groups. Ms. Vasquez Guerra and her minor daughter are from Mexico, entered the United States unlawfully in 2006, and Ms. Vasquez Guerra eventually married a lawful permanent resident. While she was in the U.S. and her family was in Mexico, the brutal Zetas criminal entity kidnapped her brother in front of her mother in 2013, and Ms. Vasquez Guerra traveled to Mexico in 2015 to be with her ill mother. During the trip, she tried to have the police investigate her brother's kidnapping. She believes that the Zetas murdered him. A few weeks after she urged for that investigation, Zetas forced their way into her home in Mexico, put a gun to her head, and told her to stop looking for her brother and not to go to the police. A few days later, she was followed by armed Zetas in a truck, had a nervous breakdown, was hospitalized, and fled to a different city. Perhaps unsurprisingly, she decided to flee back to the U.S., where she was apprehended by immigration officials and placed in removal proceedings. 
She claimed asylum based on her fear of the Zetas, an asserted particular social group, of her immediate family. The immigration judge denied for a bunch of reasons, although not on adverse credibility, and the BIA affirmed, assuming the particular social group cognizable, but holding that Ms. Vasquez-Guerra wasn't harmed or feared harm on account of that reason. The Fifth Circuit affirmed. In essence, the Fifth Circuit held that to the extent the Zetas were targeting Ms. Vasquez-Guerra, it was for criminal reasons of trying to prevent her from investigating her brother's death, not on account of the fact that she was her brother's sister. It is, quote, irrelevant, end quote, that she was only investigating the disappearance due to her relationship with her brother. This, according to the court, is all distinguishable from a 2017 Fourth Circuit case because in that very similar decision, the individual continued to receive threats even after she stopped investigating her husband's disappearance. Not so here. Plus, and apparently unlike in the Fourth Circuit where, quote, the lack of threats to other members of a family did not undermine her own fear of persecution, end quote, the Fifth Circuit believes it very relevant that family members remain in Mexico and that they haven't suffered harm, especially here where the asserted harm is based on Ms. Vesca's membership in a family-based particular social group. And then, undercutting an argument that I urged AILA Dallas chapter members to make in the Fifth Circuit earlier this very week before this decision came out, the Fifth Circuit made expressly clear that the nexus requirement required for asylum that a protected ground be one central reason, is the same as the nexus requirement for withholding of removal under the INA, despite the text of the withholding of removal statute simply using the phrase, quote, a reason, end quote. The Fifth Circuit's ruling on this issue contradicts withholdings out at the Sixth and the Ninth Circuit. Ms. Vasquez-Guerra, therefore, did not succeed, but I cannot let it end with that. Precedent is precedent, and I leave it to smarter practitioners than I in the Fifth Circuit. But I'm just saying, the withholding of removal nexus part of this decision is only one paragraph and does not engage with the difference in statutory text between asylum and withholding of removal at all. Rather, it relies on an unpublished Fifth Circuit decision which appears to be paraphrasing a published Fifth Circuit decision. It seems like there's room for argument later on this very interesting issue that is based on the plain text of the Asylum and Withholding of Removal statutes. And that is Vasquez Guerra v. Garland. Moving to the Second Circuit, we have Singh v. Garland, published on July 28, 2021. This case is about credibility, the first of two, before we end the episode. Mr. Singh is a Sikh from India and entered the U.S. without authorization in 2015. It appears he was placed in removal proceedings shortly thereafter, where he applied for asylum and related relief. Mr. Singh claimed that he was an active member of Shiromani Akali Da Amritsar, known as SADA, a political party that advocates for the rights of Sikhs and that he was attacked and beaten by police and political rivals twice. He testified and provided quite a bit of evidence to prove it. But the immigration judge denied based on an adverse credibility finding, identifying four alleged inconsistencies, which I'll get to in a sec. The BIA affirmed. The Second Circuit reversed. First, it issued a very non-citizen-friendly legal holding on adverse credibility review. It noted that the immigration statute's text provides for an incredibly deferential review of the agency on adverse cred, but if actually applied as written, the INA's review statute would conflict with the Administrative Procedure Act review provisions governing when federal circuits review agency decisions. The standard is not that the circuit must uphold the agency unless no reasonable adjudicator would be compelled to do so but rather that a circuit will only affirm the agency where, quote, and IJ's reasons for finding an applicant not credible are both, one, supported by substantial evidence in the record, and two, logically related to the applicant's credibility, end quote. Listen to that again, Second Circuit practitioners. It's quite the standard. So with that standard in mind, the Second Circuit held that the first three out of four reasons relied upon by the IJ were not proper inconsistencies, while, quote, 
The fourth presented an inconsistency so trivial and so lacking in logical support for a finding of fabrication that it could not, on its own, constitute substantial evidence to support a finding that Singh was not credible. End quote. Let's hit them one by one. So the IJ had first relied on an alleged inconsistency from the fact that while Mr. Singh testified at his hearing that he had spoken with SADA President Simranjit Man after both attacks, the conversations were not mentioned in Mr. Singh's written asylum statement provided with his asylum application. But according to the Second Circuit, an omission like this in an asylum application that doesn't actually contradict with any testimony and simply provides a basis for further details at a future hearing is not really an inconsistency. And it's not a substantial omission, as would be, say, testimony to a severe beating when an asylum application didn't even mention a beating at all. At the end of the day, an asylum application and statement is designed simply, quote, to set forth the basis for his claim of eligibility for asylum, end quote. Omissions actually are to be expected, especially when testimony is supplemental and relate to, quote, post-persecution conversations, end quote, as was the case here. All important distinctions to make. Second, the IJ had similarly held inconsistent the fact that Mr. Mann's letter didn't mention an attack. But as Mr. Singh explained, and as the letter made clear, the point of Mr. Mann's letter was, quote, to report on the brutal treatment that Sikhs and member of SADA receive in India, end quote, generally. And Mr. Mann was not a witness to the beating anyway. Each piece of evidence doesn't have to make an entire asylum claim independently. The IJ also erred in finding Mr. Singh not credible for failing to explain why Mr. Mann omitted the statement about an attack because how could Mr. Singh know why Mr. Mann didn't put something in Mr. Mann's letter? Quote, the fact that the IJ was unimpressed by his guess in no way undermined Singh's credibility. End quote. Third, the IJ didn't like that another letter of support, this one from Mr. Singh's attorney in India, stated that Mr. Singh was beaten one time, and then that, quote, second time, I was beaten up mercilessly. End quote. The IJ rejected Mr. Singh's explanation that the attorney made a typo, and instead of I, meant he, as in Mr. Singh. But the Second Circuit explained that taken in context with the rest of the letter, of which there were many sentences, the letter makes clear that it was likely a typo. Using logic that I take great umbrage at but cannot dispute, quote, it is not unusual for lawyers to prepare documents to be presented to a court, and they occasionally make mistakes. End quote. How dare you, Second Circuit? That leaves the final inconsistency. The fact that Mr. Singh testified that after the first attack, he went to a police station with only his father. But Mr. Singh also submitted a letter from a Mr. Jassel that stated that he, Mr. Jassel, also accompanied the pair to the police station. Mr. Singh testified that Mr. Jassel made a mistake. This indeed is an inconsistency, and a single inconsistency can sometimes support an adverse credibility finding. But this one, standing alone, quote, in view of the insignificance of whether Jassel did or did not accompany Singh and his father when they went to the police station, and the high likelihood that the inconsistency is attributable to an innocent explanation, such as a mistake or different recollections or perceptions, gave no substantial support for the proposition that Singh fabricated his claim or any part of it, end quote. Case remanded. Congratulations, Amy Nussbaum-Gell, of Gell and Gell, for petitioner. And that is Singh v. Garland. Finally, we have Amawali v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on July 29th, 2021. Mom, this one's for you. This decision is about adverse credibility and marriage fraud. Miss Amawali is from Nigeria and married her first husband, named Festus, in January 2007. Festus had won the diversity visa lottery for admission into the United States in 2006, literally a world lottery for people to come to the U.S., and Miss Amawali, as his spouse, was eligible for a derivative visa. But apparently by the time they actually immigrated, they were estranged and entered separately, 
in part because Miss Amawali learned that Festus had fathered a child before they married. They lived in different states in the U.S. and divorced in 2011. Festus remarried, and when he tried to naturalize, USCIS looked into him hard and determined that he had committed immigration fraud with Miss Amawali. After a long USCIS interview, Festus even signed an affidavit stating as much. Miss Amawali and Festus were both separately placed in removal proceedings as a result, and Festus actually testified in Miss Amawali's hearing. Pretty rare. Miss Amawali testified to the legitimacy of their marriage and the marriage in detail. Miss Amawali's brother also testified, stating that while he did give Miss Amawali and Festus money on two occasions, it wasn't to bring his sister to the U.S. through a scheme. The USCIS officer who got Festus to sign the affidavit even testified, what a case, stating that Festus admitted that it was a sham marriage after swearing it was legit many times, and that other evidence, such as Festus not disclosing the child from another relationship to the Department of State officer when he immigrated from Nigeria, indicated fraud. Finally, Festus took the stand, testifying that he was pressured into signing the affidavit by the USCIS officer and that the marriage was real. And as to the child in Nigeria, he said that he didn't even learn about the child from a previous relationship until shortly before immigrating to the United States. The immigration judge believed the USCIS officer and no one else, found Miss Omawali not credible, and found her removable for having obtained her admission to the United States through fraud. The IJ provided a bunch of reasons for this, and then the IJ retired. A second IJ then came on board and denied Ms. Amawali's alternative application for asylum and related relief, based on her fear of her rich second husband in Nigeria and his two other wives in Nigeria, who all allegedly beat her daily when she lived with them temporarily to marry the second husband. It seems like this was quite the hearing and quite the decision. The BIA affirmed it all as did the Seventh Circuit. For it, the case rises and falls on whether Miss Amawali can prove that the IJ erred in finding her not credible. She cannot. For immovability based on whether a sham marriage occurred, quote, the central question is whether the couple intended to establish a life together at the time they were married, end quote. On this, the IJ properly gave substantial weight to the USCIS officer's testimony over Festus's particularly as recantations, as Festus did in court, because remember, he signed an affidavit before USCIS, quote, generally are viewed with healthy skepticism, end quote. Plus, the IJ appropriately identified inconsistencies in the story, including but not limited to, quote, whether they had consummated their marriage, end quote. This and other discrepancies are not minor, but rather, according to the Seventh Circuit, would be expected to be recalled, by Festus and Miss Amawali. As to asylum and related relief, Miss Amawali submitted only her own testimony in support of her second marriage, and her testimony was already found not credible in one respect. According to the Seventh Circuit, she was indeed vague in her testimony, and she did not corroborate key parts of her story, or apparently any of it, with evidence, including a marriage certificate or any affidavit from any of the 200 to 300 people who apparently attended the second wedding. Ms. Amawali therefore lost quite the case and will be removed. And that wraps up quite the episode. Speak to you all in four weeks. Until then, I turn you over to the capable and trusted hands of Elizabeth Montano. You're going to do great, Liz. And that is Amawali v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.